1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 10 today, and the title of my message is Overcoming Temptations. It was a three-part outline to this whole chapter we'll just look at this morning. Uh, the first part of the chapter, we're going to see the privileges of God's people from the example of Israel. And then we're going to see the temptations, the second part, the temptations of God's people. And then we're going to learn some principles on how to overcome temptations. So this, this message today is applicable to every human being in here, because if you're a human being, especially if you're following the Lord and you have a pulse, you're going to have temptations. We're going to see that, and one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is in the middle of this chapter. We're going to see that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is what? Common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with that temptation will provide a way of escape. Great verse. But what it's saying there is temptations are part of being a human being. And we need to learn how to overcome that. We need to learn how to be winners against temptation. And remember the last part of context of this chapter, the last part of uh, chapter 9, we closed with last week, was we were told in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, run the spiritual race we're in in such a way to what? Win. We were exhorted that right before this chapter. We're in the spiritual race. Really, this life is a marathon we're in. And we're, we're just supposed to run this race we're in in such a way to win. And remember he said last week too, it takes some discipline. You've got to buffet your body. Because if you don't discipline the sinful, physical body that we have, and we're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, and we all have a sinful nature, and if we don't discipline the sinful nature we're in, what's going to happen is we're not going to win, we're going to lose. We're not going to be a victor. We're going to become a victim of the evil one who's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. So this chapter is very important, overcoming temptation. And so you ready to study the church? So the first section, again, the privileges of God's people. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 with me, and we'll look at uh, the privileges of God's people from the example of Israel. If you're there, say amen. So here we go. For chapter 10, verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they're drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was what? Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now here, Paul's pointing to Israel as God's people, but these privileges point to us, too, in our present relationship with God. And the first thing he says about Israel is that they all were under the cloud. Do you remember when they were in the wilderness for 40 years? Two to three million people, the largest camp out in the history of man. For 40 years, they were in tents. And for 40 years, there was a cloud that was above them. And when that cloud moved, what were they supposed to do? Move with the cloud, because the cloud was God's presence. And interesting, too, is not only his presence, but it was his protection. Because where were they at? They're in a desert, a hot desert. And, and I don't know about you, but here in South Kakalaki, I experienced that sometimes when it's really hot in August or July around here and a cloud moves in, oh, it's 10 degrees cooler all of a sudden. And so that cloud that guided them was God's presence, but it was also his protection. The first privilege we have as God's people is we're under a cloud, the cloud of God's presence. And we don't have a physical cloud following us around like the Israelites did, but we have the Holy Spirit. And we have his presence. And his presence guides us. I love God's presence guiding our lives. Isn't it wonderful? 
I love that verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean out on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Another version says he will direct your paths. It's one of the privileges of being, of being God's people. We're not just kind of groping through life, not being guided by God's presence. No, we got God's presence. And it's wonderful. And as we get into God's presence and be guided by God's presence, there's a protection and a blessing from the presence too. You know, I've been in the ministry now for 30 years, and I've had the privilege of being guided to plant three different churches. Each time, God made it clear through his presence in Heidi and I's life, you're to go, and you're going to go to that city. You don't know anybody in that city, but you're to go there, and you're supposed to start a church. And as we were obedient and guided by God's presence, there was just a protection. There was a blessing. There was just opening of doors. That's what God's presence and that's what his protection and his guiding does in our lives. It's wonderful. It's a privilege that we have. I remember we were first senior pastors conference I got to go to in Southern California, and God led me to a guy named Jerry Brown, the founder of U-Turn for Christ. And he, we just, divine appointment. I met him in a burger place of all places right before the conference. He invited me out to the U-Turn for Christ ranch, and as I was guided to go out and check out the U-Turn for Christ ranch, God's presence just spoke into my life and said, we need one of these on the East Coast, John. Talked to Pastor Jerry about starting this on the East Coast. We did, six months later. That was like 18 years ago, and hundreds of lives have been changed since then through Return for Christ. It's guided God's, God's presence. And when we go in God's presence, he directs our past, he blesses, and it's protected even. It's wonderful. First privilege is God's presence guiding us and protecting us. Second privilege of God's people, notice verse 10. It says, and all pass through the sea. Remember the Israelites. After Moses said, let my people go. Ten plagues later, the firstborn were all killed through that um, angel of death. And then Pharaoh finally let them go. And as they were going, they passed through the Red Sea. And as they passed through the Red Sea, the walls of the sea went up, and two to three million people passed through the sea. And where did they p- pass out of? Egypt and slavery. And God delivered them and set his people free. Second privilege of God's people, deliverance. Deliverance. Freedom. John chapter 8, remember Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Amen? And and you shall know the truth. John 8 also says you shall know the truth, and the truth of what? Set you free, man. I love Romans 6.18. It says, and having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. We're a slave, but we're a slave to the right master. His name is Jesus. The one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you're weary and you're tired, come to me. Ooh. And he is the, the wrong master, Satan. He'll kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Have it more abundantly. He said, I'm, I'm your, I'll be your shepherd. And I'll lead you by quiet waters. I'll restore your soul. Your cup will overflow. And my goodness and my mercy will follow you the rest of your days. Literally in the Hebrew, his goodness and mercy will hunt you down. It's awesome, isn't it? We got the right master. We're a slave of Jesus, a bondservant, and we're a slave of righteousness, and we're delivered. We're delivered. Just as the Israelites were delivered through the sea, the Red Sea, we're delivered through the red blood of Jesus Christ. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free, man. Remember what happened to me? 
I'm getting old. 40 years ago, I got saved. And I was at the height of lostness. I was going the same path as my dad in regards to partying and drinking and going right in. I was already in bondage that at 17 years old. I was going in that direction. God intervened supernaturally in my life, and I got a conversion, came to Christ. It was like this chains in my life got broken. I got set free. And I was getting high, I was getting drunk, I was doing all the crazy things. That's 40 years ago. I haven't gotten drunk or high since in 40 years. God set me free. And it's nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. It has everything to the fact that when you walk with God, he breaks the chains. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You don't have to live as a slave anymore. You don't have to go back to Egypt. You're free. You're free. You're free. Second privilege of being God's people. And then it goes on and says, and all eat the same spiritual food. What was the spiritual food they ate? Do you remember? Manna. And manna in the Hebrew actually means, what is it? Because for 40 years, God rained bread down on the ground for two to three million people. I was doing some research on that this week, and it said that for 40 years, every day, God brought enough bread on the ground to load four freight trains of 60 cars every day. That's what it took for that bread to feed two to three million people, and God did it every day, every day. Can you, can you imagine, wives, can you imagine serving your husband the same thing every night? Dear, we're having manna again. Then you start getting creative. Well, we'll call it manicotti. We'll call it banana bread. We'll just get creative with this thing. How do you get creative? The same thing every night. But they had the same thing every night. But it had the nutrients and it had what was needed to keep them healthy and strong for 40 years. God's provision. And then it also says, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual food, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now that's interesting too, because what it's saying is this rock that actually fouled them through the desert, and this rock provided the water. Can you imagine enough water for two to three million people every day for 40 years? That wasn't just a little water fountain. That was a gusher, enough water for two to three million people for 40 years. Interesting, literally, this is probably a Christophany, which is the Old Testament appearance of Christ. The rock was actually Jesus following them and providing them water for 40 years. Amazing. Amazing. And then it says this rock was Christ. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, that's the understatement of the Bible right there. Most of them went from 600,000 people of the Israelites, 600,000 men, only two of them got to get in the promised land. And who was that? Joshua and Caleb, right? But interesting, the third thing that God provides, after, after God provides the fact that he gives us his presence and his protection. He gives us his, his deliverance of, from slavery. But the third thing God provides, provision. In the Old Testament, with God's people, it was physical provision of food and water for 40 years. For us, primarily in the New Covenant, it's God's provision. Yeah, he provides for our needs. He meets all our needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus physically. But primarily, God provides spiritual provision for us. He provides the fact that when our souls are thirsty, there's one named Jesus who says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being 
will flow rivers of what? Living water. We don't have to try to go to the empty cisterns of the world to satisfy our souls, the thirst of our souls. We go to Jesus, and our cup overflows. He's also one that says, I'm the bread of life. Bread of life is, is the manna from heaven. That's Jesus. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. It's a privilege, by the way. After the, the theme song of the world is, I get no satisfaction. The theme song of our, our lives says, the deer panteth for the water brook, so I pant for thee, O God. And when I meet with thee, O God, you fill up my soul. I have a cup that overflows. It's wonderful. It's a privilege of walking with God. We don't have to have empty souls anymore. We have one that quenches the thirst of our soul and fulfills the hunger of our heart. Again, I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. One of the most amazing, shocking interviews I ever saw on TV was when Ted Turner, billionaire from Atlanta, was interviewed by Connie Chung. She asked him, what do you think of Christianity? He said, I think it's a crock. And her mouth dropped. She said, why do you say that? And he said, because I don't need any man to die for me. Shocking. Her mouth even dropped. I don't know if she's a Christian or not. But then she went on to ask him. She asked him, well, Ted Turner, with all your billions of dollars, are you happy? And he said, Connie, I got everything. I got my own baseball stadium, Atlanta Braves. I got CNN Network. I got everything. But I'm not happy. And it's this, all this stuff I got, he said, it's an empty bag. I had to get it all to find that out, but it's an empty bag. You know why he's not happy? Because he's got an empty heart. Because he's a rejecter of Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't repent, we need to pray for him. Pray that he finds fulfillment in Jesus finally, I don't know, sometime in his life. Because if he doesn't, he'll be the richest man in hell. It doesn't satisfy. The stuff of this world is empty cisterns. Jesus is the one that makes our cup overflow. It's a privilege of walking with God, being God's people. He fulfills the desires of our heart. Now, let's look at the temptations. We saw the privileges. Let's look at the temptations now. Verse 6. Now, these were things happening as as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Now, uh, King James says that we will not lust for those things that they lusted. And what it's saying there is everything in the Old Testament, even the mistakes of the Old Testament, even the things that they did wrong are in the Scriptures so that we can learn from their mistakes. You know, we could either learn from our mistakes and go through the school of hard knocks, or we can learn from the mistakes of others and not do what other people have done. That's why I'm convinced throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God's people making mistakes. Why? So we can learn from them through their example and say, I'm not going to repeat the mistakes of history there. I'm going to do different. And that's what we're supposed to do is we see the mistakes throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Learn from their example is what Scripture is saying. Then verse 7 says, Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, first temptation being listed here is idolatry. It goes back to Moses. Do you remember Moses? In the Old Testament, he was up on Mount Sinai. He was getting the Ten Commandments. The first two were, Have no other gods before me. Don't worship vain idols. And as he's coming back down to the camp of two to three million people off of Mount Sinai, he heard partying. And then he confronted Aaron. He said, Aaron, what's going on? And they came down, and they were were partying. They were worshiping a golden calf. Now imagine, he had just heard from God. The fingers of God 
carved the Ten Commandments in the two tablets. First two, have no other gods before me, don't worship vain idols. And what was his people, he was a leader of, doing? They were worshiping a golden calf, idolatry. And not only that, he confronts Aaron, his brother, and says, what are you doing? You're the leader as I was gone. I left you in charge of them. And then Aaron goes, he goes, well, we just took some of their gold, we threw it in a fire, and this golden calf came out just miraculously, and we, I felt we were supposed to worship him that. That's like one of the worst excuses I've ever heard. That's worse than my dog ate my homework. Right? And it's just, and, and full-on idolatry. And some of you are saying, well, that's not a temptation for me. I don't worship golden calves. I worship Jesus. Yeah, but careful. You know what idolatry is? It's anything in your life that you put more important than Jesus Christ. It could be money. It could be success. It could be popularity. It could be friends. Listen, it could even be your family. You know, the first thing in your life isn't supposed to be your family. It's supposed to be Jesus. And your family would be a lot better off if you do what he says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness so that you can add all things unto him. Seek him first. Put him first. The Bible says delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Don't fall to the idols that are all throughout our culture, materialism, all that stuff. Don't let your heart wander from God because other things become more important than your relationship with Christ. First thing in our lives, first priority is our walk with God. Idolatry is a temptation in our culture too. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Second temptation after idolatry, immorality. The word in the Greek there again is pornea. And it means any kind of sexual activity out of the boundaries of a God-ordained marriage. And if you're involved in any kind of sexual activity outside of your marriage relationship, you're in sin and you're giving way to temptation. And I don't care what the culture says. The rest of the culture says, hey, it's fine. Everybody's fine. Don't be antiquated. Practice, you know. Hey, before you buy a car, you better test drive it. Well, right. That's the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of the word. What does the word say? The word says in Ephesians chapter 5, 3 about this very issue. It says, but among you there must not even be a, a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, any greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. What is that saying there in the word? It's saying that as God's holy people, stay within the boundaries of marriage for your sexual activity. Because if you don't, Hebrews chapter 13 says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God doesn't play in this area. 23,000 people, 23,000 people of God's people were under God's discipline and died in the wilderness because they were messing around this area. This goes back to the story of Balaam. The prophet Balaam couldn't curse Israel, and Balak, the Moabite uh, king, was trying to get him to curse Israel. And so Balaam finally said, I can't do it. God's not letting me curse them, but if you want them to be cursed, then do this. Bring your Moabite women into the camp of the Israelites. Let them seduce the people of God. And God's people, if they give into the seduction of sexual immorality, I will judge, or God will judge. You're going to bring them under God's judgment by bringing them into immorality. It's still true today. God will discipline his people that become immoral in this area. I don't care what the culture says. This is what God says. Interesting, it's in, in Numbers, where this story is from, it says 24,000 people died because of the immorality. And this 
New Testament, right here, it says 23,000 people died. Now, a lot of people might say, there's a contradiction, John. You say there's no contradictions in the Bible. But you know what? Whenever there's a seeming contradiction in the Bible like this, you know what it tells me? I just need to study it some more. And it says 23,000 people died. Number says 24,000 people died. But what does it say after 23,000 in our verse right here? One day. 24,000 died. Could have been days after that. In one day, 23,000 died. Do you see that? There seems to be a contradiction. Just study a little bit more and you'll figure out what it's really saying. And then it goes on. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the serpents. Now, they tried the Lord when they were speaking against, Numbers uh, chapter 21, they were speaking against Moses and they were speaking against God's provision. They said to Moses, you know, Moses, what's going to happen is, is we're going to die out here in the wilderness and we want to go back to Egypt because they had oh, such good food back then. All we got is manna. And then it says, because of their grumbling, they were destroyed by the destroyer, or they were destroyed uh, by the serpents. They were trying the Lord and they're complaining and grumbling about God's provision. Listen, here's another temptation. We, we make light of it sometimes. Complaining and grumbling. Now the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The Bible says in, Romans, in Philippians 4.4, 4, uh, rejoice in the Lord when everything's going good. Is that what it says? Just making sure you're tracking with me here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And part of walking in righteousness is walking with a spirit of thanksgiving rather than complaining and grumbling. You know, David in the Psalms said, hey, I looked at my lot in life. He said, I have a good lot. You know what? Contentment is a part of walking in righteousness, where you just look at your life and say, God, you've been good. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. Contentment, thankfulness, keeps away from the sin of grumbling and complaining. And then in verse 10 it says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now that's interesting too. They were grumbling against Moses' leadership. It was Korah and 250 leaders with them. And then they went out to meet and take Moses on. You remember the story? What happened to those people that were grumbling? Big hole in the ground opened up and swallowed them up and they all died. Next time you're complaining about God's leadership, look, be careful on the ground you're standing on. Because it says, because of their complaining about God's provision of leadership, open up the ground and swallowed them. Now, verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example, and they're written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, we're going to move from the temptations. We've seen privileges, temptations. Now we're going to move to the principles for overcoming temptation. Look at the first principle, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest he fall. First principle for overcoming temptation. Careful. Be, look at this now. Look at, look, at, look at standing. What's sandwiched in between, or what's sandwiched between take heed? It's standing and what? Falling. And if you don't want to fall, the thing that's sandwiched in, in the, right in the middle right there is take heed. What does that mean? Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. And how can we be careful? By staying humble. God is opposed to the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. I love Proverbs when it talks about this, being careful to stay humble. It says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, and what? Haughty spirit before stumbling. I got this. I'll never fall to that temptation again. That other person might have a problem there. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm great. Careful. He who thinks he stands better take heed lest he fall. The Bible says we're supposed to be on the alert. Our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's looking for people to devour. We're not on a vacation for 70 years. We're in a war. Keep your guard up. He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Talked about this, that a little bit last week. Talked about the fact that, you know, the Lord's been laying on my heart lately. I gotta keep my guard up. I gotta be more careful. I gotta make sure that I stay humble because I see even Calvary Chapel pastors falling. Pastor of the largest Calvary Chapel in the world. Uh, several years ago, about five, six, five years ago now, I think about fell. And he's still in a position of disqualification. He's not even in the ministry anymore. And he pastored the largest Calvary Chapel in the world. You know, I knew him. He wrote my letter of recommendation to Pastor Chuck to become a Calvary Chapel. He was a great evangelist, probably one of the greatest communicators I've ever heard in regards to teaching the word and holding people's attention. Amazing communicator. But at the same time, I, lo I look back in that interaction with him a little bit, and I realize there was a little bit of a pride thing going there. There was a haughty spirit. There was an arrogance a little bit. And I remember after he fell, I remember Greg Laurie and uh, Don McClure doing a K-Wave radio broadcast just letting people know about the fall of the pastor of the largest Calvary Chapel in the world. And they said they had personally talked to him after the fall, and one of the things he said was, one of the things that led to his fall is because of the growth of the church, he got into celebrity mentality, and he was famous, and he was reading his own mail, own, own news reports. And the pride and arrogance is what he said was a big part that led to his fall. He who thinks he stands better take heed lest he fall. Stay humble, church, and stay on the alert, right? Take heed is what it's saying right there. First principle for overcoming temptation. Stay humble and stay on the alert. Verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. This is a verse every Christian should memorize. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. Here's the second principle overcoming temptation. Realize any temptation you face, it's common to man. Why is that important? Because when we face temptation, the devil comes in, wants to condemn you and make you feel worthless, like you're the only person facing what you're facing. So true, untrue, untrue, untrue. Common to man, anthropanos in the Greek, and it means this. It means characteristic of every single human being is temptation. Even Jesus, did you know that? Jesus faced every temptation that you face. How do I know that? Because Hebrews Chapter 4.15 says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been what? What's it say? Tempted, notice, in all things as we are, yet, here's the difference though, yet without sin. Interesting. So when Satan comes in, the temptation comes in, don't let him condemn you, don't let him lay this guilt trip on you. Realize whatever you face, other people are facing too, but also realize God is faithful. 
And he's not going to let you be tempted in, beyond the protective barriers he has around you. Any temptation you face, God is only going to let you be tempted by anything that you know he knows you can endure. He's going to have this protective hedge around you, and anything you face in temptation, God knows you have the ability and the power by the Spirit to say no to it. And not only that, the verse says, he gives you the ability to say no to it, but also, listen, he'll give you a way of escape. Provides a way out. Door B. Door A is the temptation. Door B is the way of escape. And what's the way of escape oftentimes? It's the next verse. Flee. It says, flee from idolatry, right? It says, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know, what's, you know what the way of escape oftentimes when you face temptation is? Here's the way of escape. It's your Nike gym shoes. It's get out of Dodge, man. Get out of Dodge. What did Joseph do when he was being tempted by Potiphar's wife? Lie with me. Did he, like a moth, see how close he can get to the flame and see if he could fight it? No. He, he said, I'm out of here. Flee. And listen, real honest here, Pastor John's being honest with you, a part of fleeing for some of you, it might mean you might have to cut some things off. Honest. Fleeing for some of you might mean you've you got to cut some associations off you have. Well, I want to keep those old immoral friends of mine so I can lead them to Christ. Yeah, keep witnessing to them, but don't hang out with them anymore. Because 1 Corinthians 15, says, bad company corrupts good morals. And I remember when I came to Christ 40 years ago, as I had all my party friends, and I remember, I remember they waited about two or three months. They thought I was going through this fad, this Jesus fad kind of thing. And then they, about two or three months later, they started calling me again. They started inviting me to the parties again. They started inviting me to the rock concerts. They started inviting me to party with them, literally. And I, at first, I justified hanging out with them, and I kind of hung out with them for a little while and stuff. I said, I'm going to witness to them. I'll lead all my buddies to Christ. They'll be in the Bible study with me. And you know what I found out? It's a lot easier for them to pull me down than for me to pull them up. And I had to cut them from my association list. I said, you guys are cut. You're done. And I just said, you guys, I love you. I will witness to you. I'll share Christ with you. I'm going to invite you to church or Bible study. But guys, I ain't hanging out with you anymore. Because every time I hung out with them for any extended period of time, I was stumbling as a new Christian. And I said, I had to cut those associations. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, what are you supposed to do? Gouge it out. And for some of you, if you have associations that every time you're hanging out with them, you're starting to stumble or be tempted by something, you might need some new friends. As iron sharpens iron, so one man can sharpen another in godliness. And you might need to cut off some places you're going. You know, if you're going to places and you go to this place, and every time you go to the place, you're under temptation, very, very clear. I think we've got to be careful about not only association, but places. If you don't want to slip anymore, don't go to slippery places, Right? I know after 40 years of walking with the Lord, if I go to certain places, I don't care how close I'm walking with the Lord. If I go to certain places, especially by myself, I will be tempted. So I avoid those places. For some of you, I know I'm stepping on toes here, but for some of you, you might need to cut off some social media. I was talking to Pastor Steve a while back, and he said literally there's been several U-Turn for Christ leaders that are leaders of U-Turns in other states that have fallen morally because they were messing around on Facebook and they got an inappropriate relationship going on social media that led to a physical relationship. 
You know, some of you might need to take a break from some of the social media, the Snapchat, the tweeting, the whatever the stuff's called. Take a break. Take a break. I remember back when we had pay phones. And now we got like internet, all it's 24-7 going all the time. And it could be a good thing. It could be a source of resources biblically. It could help us with connecting with Christians and stuff like that. But be careful. Be careful. Be careful. God's faithful. He'll give you a way of escape, but you've got to choose the way of escape. You've got to be careful. Now going on, he gives an example of bad circumstances and bad associations and bad places. Verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. This is talking about communion. When you partake of communion with believers, you become one with them. Why? Because you're becoming one in Christ, with Christ in the communion act, and it's like family coming together as one is what he's saying. Verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are not all those who eat, eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean by that? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? Here's what, here's what he's saying. He's saying, when you become a, a part of communion with believers, you're becoming one with them. You're becoming one with God. But some of these Corinthians were feeling the liberty that they could still go back to their pagan, idolatrous temples hang out with their old associations, their old friends, and even participate in some of the pagan idol festivities. And what's Paul saying about that? Is he saying, well, no problem. All different religions are fine. They all lead up to the same roads to God. Fine, just hang out with your pagan friends. Do the idol worship and, you know, whatever. No, he said, no, no, no. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when you're a part of these pagan festivities and you're part of the idolatrous worship of their idol gods, you are worshiping demons. Interesting. You know what that's telling us today? All religions aren't fine. It's telling us that if you get, participate in a religion like Buddhism or Muslim or Hinduism, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping demons. Ooh, John, that's not politically correct. I don't care about being politically correct. I care about being biblically correct. Amen? And you know what? I agree wholeheartedly with Franklin Graham, who's been all over the world in Muslim countries with Samaritan's Purse, helping millions of people. And I agree with Franklin Graham when he said his appraisal, after all this exposure to Muslim countries and Muslim worlds, his appraisal of the Muslim religion is it's an evil and demonic religion. And that's true, listen, that's true of every false religion besides Christianity because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And this universalism that's so present and prevalent in our culture today is not true Christianity. There's only one way, and that's Jesus. Any other way, you're worshiping demons. That's what the Bible says. And we're gonna stick with what the Word of God says in that area. I don't care what the culture's saying. We're going to stick with what the Word says. There's only one way, and the way is Jesus. Now, we love Muslims. We love Buddhists. We love all people out there, but we've got to tell them the truth, and the truth is there's only one way, 
in the way is Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Otherwise, it's demonic is what Paul's saying in the Scripture. And then it goes, in, goes on, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Here's what Paul's saying now. The thing about buying meat in the marketplace that might have come from idle sacrifices, no big deal. It's just meat. Go ahead and feel free to eat that meat if you got out in the marketplace. He was warning against idol worship and pagan festivities, but he's saying the meat's okay. But, he says in verse 27, if any one of the unbelievers invites you and wants to go and eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake, but if anyone says, this is meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Here's what he's saying here. If someone brings up the fact that's feeding you, oh, this is from my pagan temple and it's idol meat, don't go there because you might stumble them in your witness because you're eating their idol meat. He's just being careful. Don't stumble a brother. Or, or, or someone that's feeding you idle meat. Don't stumble them when you're witness. Verse 29, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Here's the last principle overcoming temptation. Verse 31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do what? Do it for the glory of God. And then he closes up the chapter. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they might be saved. Here's the last principle. You want to overcome temptation? Then any decision and choice you make, put it through the grid of whether that choice is going to bring glory to God. What does glory mean? In the Greek, it's doxa. We get the word doxology from that. It means praise. It means dignity. It means honor. And so put through the grid when you're facing a choice, is this freedom of making this choice, is it going to bring praise, dignity, honor to my God? If it doesn't, don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) One of my best friends in California was in medical sales. For years, he was a part of this medical company that every year the sales convention for that medical company was in Las Vegas, Nevada. And as he went there, he was like me. He played on our softball team. He was, he was competitive. He was an athlete and stuff. And so he would go to Vegas with all the other salesmen, and he would try to show them how good he could do on the blackjack tables. And he was a Christian. He dedicated, rededicated his life to, to Christ in our church in California. But he just felt, I felt the, he told me, I felt the freedom. I'd just go, and as long as I had a limit and careful, I'd just play blackjack. And then after several years of this, the Lord finally spoke to him as he grew in his faith. And the Lord said, Mark, you're killing your witness by playing blackjack with these other salespeople that you're trying to tell about Jesus. Because they're seeing you play blackjack, and it's stumbling your witness with them. So you know what Mark did? He quit playing blackjack because he realized his choice of playing blackjack wasn't bringing glory to God because of the freedom he was taking there. I had another friend in college. He was another excellent Mark. His name was Mark too. Good friend. And every summer, he was a part of our Dr. Dave Bible study I was in and stuff. And every summer, he was a part of our fellowship and something. He was on fire for Christ. I mean, he had an enthusiasm, a passion, an excitement for Christ. But then he went to college, and every time he went to college for the whole school year in college, he'd backslide. You know why? Because he felt the freedom to be involved at Emory University at a fraternity 
And that fraternity, every Thursday night, every Friday night, every Saturday night, every Sunday night, would have drinking parties, and he would be pulled into that. And so after a couple summers of seeing him come back and be on fire during the summer and then partying during the school year and backsliding all school year long, I finally had a kind of a, one of those debates with him after Bible study, Dr. Dave's Bible study. I said, Mark, quit the fraternity, man. He goes, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a witness to my fraternity brothers, and I'm trying to get a Bible study started. I said, Mark, it ain't working. Quit the fraternity. And he was just blowing me off. So I said, hey, Mark, let's go talk to Dr. Dave about this. So I brought him over to Dr. Dave, and, and he, said, he said, John's telling me I've got to quit the fraternity. And, you know, I've got people I'm trying to be a witness to and that and stuff. And, and, and I, I, th- I think I was supposed to be in that fraternity. Dr. Dave, what do you think? I'll never forget Dr. Dave's answer. I was just sitting watching. Dr. Dave goes, would Jesus, Mark, be a part of your fraternity? And Mark just spontaneously answered, he goes, well, of course not. <laughs> and Dr. Dave said, well, there's your answer. You're supposed to walk in Jesus' steps. You're supposed to quit the fraternity. And I said, yeah, go get him, Dr. Dave. See the principle there? Whatever you do, in eating or drinking, in your lifestyle, whatever you do, do for the glory of God, the doxa, the praise, the honor, the dignity of your God. And if you can't do it for the glory of God, listen, church, don't do it. Don't do it. So what is, what's the principles we've seen for overcoming temptation? We'll close that this morning. Hey, stay humble and stay on the alert. He who thinks he stands better take heed lest he fall. Number two, hey, any temptation you face is common to man, but God's faithful. He'll, he'll will not let you face anything you can't endure, and he'll provide a way of escape. Number three, very important, flee. The way of escape for many of us is, man, we gotta cut off some things, cut off some association, cut off some places we're going. Be careful in that area. If you need to cut it off, for goodness sake, cut it off. Nothing's worth endangering your relationship with Jesus Christ. And number four, overcoming temptation, put it through the grid. These choices I'm making, is it gonna bring glory to God? Is it gonna bring praise and honor, dignity to the God we serve? Amen? Amen, Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, God, that your word is true. Thank you, God, that your word equips us in righteousness, Lord. Thank you that your, your word, God, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, God. Thank you that your word is piercing as a double-edged sword. It does spiritual surgery in our hearts, Lord. And Father, I pray that you help us to be people that are receiving what you're bringing to us today, and that is that we have, we have privileges. We have the privilege of your presence guiding us and protecting us. We have the privilege, Lord, of just your glory being in our lives. And just, we're not under a cloud, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us and protect us and to guide us and to lead us. And we thank you for that this morning, God. Thank you so much for the privilege of being uh, in your presence and having your presence guiding and blessing our lives. Lord, thank you so much also, too, for deliverance. Thank you, God, that we are set free by the power of your word and the work of your spirit in our lives. Thank you that we know the truth and the truth has set us free. And if the sun sets us free, we are free indeed. Thank you for the privilege too, God, of your provision. Not only physical provision, God, but your provision, God, for our souls. That as we allow you to be our shepherd, God, our cup overflows. You lead us beside quiet waters. You're, you're, your love and your mercy and your goodness follow us all the days of our lives and we're gonna dwell in your temple forever. We thank you for that, God. 
Thank you, Lord. And Father, help us to be people that apply these principles of overcoming temptation. There's idolatry out there. There's lusts out there. There's all kinds of things that Satan's using to trip us up. And help us to be careful, Lord, in these areas. Help us to be people that stay humble and realize that except the grace of God, there go we. Help us to take heed, Lord. Keep our guards up. Help us to be people that are, that are, that are also knowing, God, that you're with us that you're not letting any temptation come into our lives that we can't endure and you provide a way of escape. Give us the wisdom, Lord, to flee from things we need to flee from, to cut out things we need to cut out and help us have hearts, Lord, that want to do everything for your glory, God. Help us to shine our lights in such a way that others may see our good works and they too may glorify you, our Father in heaven, God. Father, I pray for anybody that might be here this morning that they're in the midst of temptation even right now. They've been fighting battles even this week of just, just temptation. I pray that today might be a day that they just surrender once again to your power and to your way, Lord, and choose, choose to go your way for your glory, God. I pray that they would sense by what your word says this morning that, they, that you're, you're faithful, God, and you won't allow them to be tempted beyond what they're able, but you are providing ways of escapes even this week. Give them the wisdom to flee, to cut off, to do whatever they need to do to win against these temptations, Lord. Thank you for your word that says we're supposed to run in such a way to win. Help, help us to discipline ourselves in godliness, Lord. Help us to be people that choose your way, not the world's way, Lord. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, church.